It was last September that we began a verse-by-verse study of the book of Ephesians. We had titled that uh, Dream Bigger based on the middle verse in the book, Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. According to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church, in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. At that time in September, we were uh, giving away some t-shirts with that theme on there, and we have some left that we've pulled back out. It's down the hallway. You can find those on a table. Help yourself uh, to the sizes that are still available, and you can wear that just as a reminder of the greatness of God and His love for the local church. Well, today we're going to open the book back up after having a a seasonal break. But I want us to get back into the book, and we're going to go into chapter 4. So if you don't, uh, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, pick up the black Bible in front of you. It's always preferred that you have a copy of God's Word in your hand, whether on your phone or or, uh, the printed Word. Because these are the words of life. And just so you understand the the framework of the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters which we dealt with in the first, uh, or in the fall, and now going into chapter four and the remainder of the chapters, there's a, a division of purpose. We're moving from doctrine of the first three chapters to the duties of a believer in the last three chapters. From the creed to our conduct, from indicative to imperative, from uh, just an exposition to now an exhortation telling us this is what you do in your response. Perhaps we could even see the first three chapters as the wealth of Christ and the last three chapters as the walk of a Christian. What are we to do with the knowledge, the doctrines, the the, the, the richness of, of Christ, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that has been revealed to us, that took us out of our dead state and made us alive. I want us to go back just quickly to Romans, or not Romans, but Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. I want you to see even the division of focus right here. Now to him. Speaking about God himself, who is able. How many of you believe this morning God is able to do whatever he desires to do? God is powerful. He's sovereign. He's in control. He never stepped away from his throne and says, I'm just going to turn it over to the ways of the world. He is able where we are not. But I want you to notice he is able to do far more abundantly than all uh, according uh, all that we can ask or think. So we ought to be asking, we ought to be praying, we ought to be thinking higher. But even at the, the height of our prayers, at the height of our thinking, God is still able to do far more than that. And I want you to notice it's according to the power, and we know the power comes from him. It's his power, his abilities. But what does he do? He enables A group of people to accomplish his will. You notice here it says, according to the power at work, where? Within us. Us is the redeemed saints that he's already spoken about from 
Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3. Even uh, Paul identifies himself in, in chapter 3 as a prisoner. But he's a prisoner now of Christ. He lives for Christ. He's enabled by Christ. God does his marvelous work in this world as he works through his people. Because it confounds the world. How in the world can the people of God who are just sinners, saved by grace, incapable, uh, unable to do anything on their own, how are they able to do the marvelous deeds of, of Christ? Because it's his power that works through us. The more we surrender to his word and his will, the more we will see God work in our world. So it's not about us performing for God to get his attention. It's about us laying out prostrate, prostrate, don't want to get that wrong, prostrate before God and just say, not my will, but your will be done. Oh, how the world needs to see the power of God through his people far more than it does today. It sees politics and it sees division and it sees, you know, prosperity or those who are without but does it see the power of God that works within us? Now, when he works within us, this is where he concludes in verse 21. He's working through us, but then who gets the glory? The church, the individuals, the leaders, the, the followers? No, to him, once again, his power, his people, but he received the glory in the church collectively. We were a group. And in Christ Jesus throughout this generation, the former generation, the generations to come, That we are part of a bigger family, a bigger body, a bigger purpose than we can ever imagine. And this takes place forever and ever. Amen. The first three chapters are all about the greatness of God. The last three chapters are about the greatness of God through the greatness of His church. So when we take notes, when we begin to pray, God... Uh, reveal to us what your word says. We ought to be having a surrendered heart. Show me how I can live out your greatness in the world that you put me in with my brothers and sisters in the church local and the church international. So we move into chapter 4. Chapter 4, and I'm going to just take it in two major divisions over the next two weeks, Lord willing. But it's really showing us the power at work within us. It's going to be, become manifest on what this power looks like. And I'm going to show you in the first 16 verses today that there's a bigger unity that takes place. If there's a power that works within us, there has to be a united group that accomplishes it. These are not Lone Ranger independent uh, commands. This is a collective command that we all need to unify. And at the the end of the uh, chapter, it's going to show us that we have a bigger identity than we can ever imagine. So today I want to just focus primarily on the power working within us to bring a bigger unity within the church. A unity that was unseen in the culture of that day and still unseen in our culture in that there's a there's not much unity in our country today. There's not much unity in our community today. There's so much division, so many things that we divide on, so many differences of opinion, different uh, uh, convictions. So how is it that, that God in the first century could take Jews and Gentiles uh, uh, and bring them together in one body that they may be unified for the cause of Christ? They have different background, different economic status. How is it 
that God can do his power through his people when they're so different. And so in order to to accomplish his will, he begins to unify. So let me unpack what we, what we can see here. And I want you to see just in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Once again, uh, remind you, he is in prison. And he's writing this letter to, to the church. And I'm a prisoner of the Lord. And then he says, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I want you to notice here that the term there, urge you, you may not be able to see this in the English, but in Greek, that is a plural you. That's not just you individually. You take your little walk on your way. It's you as the church are being called together to unify. This is a calling that's not just individual. Certainly our salvation is individual calling, but it's a calling to join something bigger than yourself. It's the the unity of the body of Christ. You together must walk together according to the call that God has called you to. Something much greater than you can imagine. It's not just being saved from our sin that we may have heaven in the future, but it's saved from our sin to join a united body that is a powerful force against Satan and his demons in this world. So he says, plurally, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you collectively to walk. After exalting the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in the first three chapters, he now turns to the collective body of redeemed saints and says, you have a role. You have a responsibility. So what is your response? You think about response comes from responsibility in the sense that we have to respond to the calling of God because of what he has revealed to us. Walk is a significant phrase in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 2, Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And in chapter 2, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him, that we should walk in them. Our walk is already set. The path is already paved. Christ has provided it. Therefore, rather than walking in our own patterns of sin, we've been redeemed, secured now in Christ. The Spirit is within us. Now walk in it. Chapter 4, verse 1, as we've just seen, walk in a manner worthy. In verse 17, you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. In chapter 5, verse 2, he says, walk in love. The way you walk is it manifesting the love of Christ. In in verse 8 of chapter 5, walk as children. When children all gather together and they have to follow the teacher to the, to the next classroom or to the next uh, uh, recreational time, they're following along. We are following our great shepherd, the great teacher, Jesus Christ. We walk in unison together as children of light. In chapter 5, verse 15, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Our walk makes all the difference in the power of God working through us. Have you ever seen someone at a distance and you look over and you can't figure out their face and who is that? Maybe there's a group of people that you're looking, who is that? And then all of a sudden you go, oh, that's so-and-so. Look at how they walk. Some of you have unique walks. I've been told I have a unique walk. They can just say, oh, that's, that's Chris because look at the way he, whatever it looks like. I have no idea. 
I can't make it up. But there are people at a distance. You may not see their face, but you know how they walk. That is what it's like for a believer in Christ. He's looking at our lives saying, I can tell that you're one of mine because of how you walk. Not in your strut, but in your character. How you live, what you say, what you do makes a difference. And how you do that collectively identifies you as a part of the church. The remainder of the book, Paul's going to urge this walking theme. We walk in unity in our, in our verses today. We're going to walk in purity, uh, chapters four, end of four through chapter five. We're going to walk in harmony together. And then at the end in chapter six, we walk in victory because uh, the full armor of God that we have and all that God unpacks for us, we're going to walk in victory. So today, let's just focus on three primary things. First, this unity that God calls us to includes family. Different things that the church are called. We're, we're called a building. We're called um, a, you know, a collection or a gathering, ecclesia. We're also called a family. And I want you to notice with this plural language, we're walking together. We are a family. And, and therefore, we, be, uh, we become family first by our calling. When the Spirit of God calls your heart and mind to repent of your sins, to recognize Jesus is the only way to heaven, that you in your own standing fall short of the glory of God, but Christ in his grace died for you on the cross, rose from the grave and said, every man, woman, boy and girl who will trust me in my work and not in their own work will be called to salvation. Any man, woman, boy or girl who confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart will be saved. Do you believe that? Do you share that? Because the gospel, the good news, is that we are being called out of our sin and into our Savior's life and heart. We've been called out of our sin and out of the ways of the world. We've been called into a relationship with him. What you may not have understood at the moment of salvation is that you're not just called to a relationship with God. You're called to a relationship with the family of God. That you're not a lone ranger, independent, isolated believer You've been ushered into a brand new family where we have a father over his children. And so in that, we become family because of our calling. The Greek word for, for church is ekklesia. Uh, it literally means assembly. But if you break down the Greek word, ek and, and uh, ekklesia, you know, or ek means out of. And ekklesia is kaleo, means to call. You realize that those who are called out of where they have been so they have a relationship with God and the body of Christ. The church is the called out ones to be together, to accomplish God's will and to glorify his name and to find our most joy when we're in the right family. No matter what kind of family you've come from, God's family is unique because it brings together people who would have never related with one another outside of the grace of Christ. And we've got brothers and sisters all over the world. There is a value. No matter where you go in the United States, if you're on vacation, I always say, find a church if you're there on a Sunday. Find some brothers and sisters you can worship with. If you ever travel outside of the United States, guaranteed you'll find some believers that you can worship with. It may look a little different. It may feel a little different. Maybe the singing is different. Maybe the, the order of service is different. But if they know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are brothers and sisters and connected. 
There's a joy. People you've never met are, are part of your extended family. It says that we are called to live together, called out of our sin, called to be connected. And because of his call, we can walk as children of the light, which he'll call us to later. And because of his call, we walk not as, uh, uh, walk as wise, not as unwise. We're part of a family. We're also uh, not just about our calling, it's about our character. Look at verse 2 and 3. He immediately says that we're called together, united in this family. So how are we going to live together in this united calling? He said, we want to glorify God. Yes, you know where that's going to be manifested? When you deal with one another. How many of you were incredible husbands or wives before you got married? You read a book? You've seen other couples? You said, when I get married, I'm going to be just like this person. And then you had your honeymoon, it was great, and maybe there was a great season, but then you got into a, a tiff. Well, obviously, they hadn't read that book. They didn't have the models that you had, so something must be wrong, and it must be them. How many of you read some parenting books before you had your first child? And then you realize that child did not read that book. They write their own path. Here's the thing, we can be excellent in, in, our, in our minds about how uh, we are until we get into relationship with someone else and then we realize that we don't always think alike. We don't always respond alike. And then we realize ultimately that left to ourselves, we are minimized. But in a body, we are maximized because all the gifts, all the, the personality, everything together is a mosaic that is beautiful. Where we lack Someone has some strengths that we need. Where we have strengths, we bring that to those who are at a deficit. Individually, we're a puzzle piece that doesn't fit unless we're a part of the collective body. But together, and Joyce Links Wilder's my puzzle buddy. It looks beautiful when it's all put together. And it irritates me to no end when you put a thousand-piece puzzle together and there are two pieces missing. I will scour the house because it's not complete. Likewise, we ought to be like that as believers because when we live together and we know there are some people missing, we ought to go find those pieces and say, you need to be here. You're a part of the beautiful picture God is painting for our time. Don't miss out. So look, what does this character look like? This character begins to unpack itself saying uh, that we ought to live together with all humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's our character collectively with one another. Humility. Oh, how important that is in our day. Someone described humility as, as the grace that you have until you know you have it and then you lose it. You know, humility just it's giving to others. It's in some simple ways. Some people have said it's when Jesus is first in your life and everything he wants. And then other people who have needs, you meet those needs. And then yourself, Jesus, others, and you. That's where joy is. And knowing ourselves and, and accepting ourselves and being ourselves for the glory of God, we become humble. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3 Paul says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. And this is right after he says that, that we ought to not think 
like the world, that we ought to have our minds renewed. We ought to live our lives and, and lay our bodies down to sacrifice the Lord. What is the first thing he says after that? He says, you ought not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God assigned, that God is doing a work in you. Therefore, part of the renewal of your mind is raising Christ up and lowering yourself down and being thankful and, and grateful that God is willing to save you. And then he puts you into a family and you take that same humble attitude with your brothers and sisters. He says gentleness, and this isn't weakness, it's power under control. Moses was a gentle man, it said as in Numbers chapter 12, yet he exercised tremendous power under the authority of God. Jesus said of himself, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Yet he drove out money changers and, you know, from the temple and stood boldly against the Pharisees. There is a gentleness that is still strong. In Greek, the same word is used for a soothing medicine, powerful to take effect, but it comes in smoothly. Uh, it's, a, it's used of a colt that had been broken. It's used of a soft wind. Wind can tear uh, houses apart when it's in a, in a hurricane or a tornado. But also that, that power can be under control and just give you the soft, gentle breeze. It's power under control. It says that we have to have patience with one another. How many of you have patience? Yeah. Confess it. Because God will test you with it. It says patience bearing with one another in love. It literally means long-tempered. How many of you have ever known someone who's short-tempered? Don't elbow them right now. It won't go, go well for you. You ever thought of somebody as long-tempered? They are so patient. The world comes after them. Things don't go well. You're sitting in traffic on Ward Road or Timber Lake. You know, the promotion didn't come. And, and rather than throwing a hissy fit in the middle of it, just you pause, they pray, they, they just have patience. How many of you have ever read 1 Corinthians 13 about love? The first identifier of an expression of love is this. Love is patient. Are you patient with those in your life? Yes, maybe they don't live up to your expectations. Maybe they said something or did something you don't agree with. But do you love them in spite of what they've said or done? It says here, in the body of Christ, bearing with one another in love. That happens with patience. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and patience. It says here that we ought to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. It could be translated to, to, to guard that unity. It means it takes an active effort to protect the unity of the body. As one senior saint told a young couple, it's great that you love each other, but if you're going to stay happy in marriage, you're going to have to work for it. How many of you would agree with that? It takes effort. Same thing, whether it's in your, your married life or, 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 you know, in a work situation or even in the church. We have to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. When we think everything is fine and we want to relax, that's when Satan will take attack. And when he does that, will we let him get a foothold? Don't let Satan get a foothold in your life by lessening your eagerness to maintain unity of the Spirit. 
And you notice he, he concludes these characteristics with the, in the bond of peace. First, we have to have peace with God. If we're in enmity with God, we don't want God's will, we don't surrender to God, then therefore we are always going to have difficulties in our relationship with others, whether in your home or in other places. But when we have the peace uh, with God, then we have the peace of God that we can, we can call on. God, help me to have peace in the midst of my relationships like I have peace with you today. And he gives you a gentle spirit, a peace that passes all understanding so that you can let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts Since you're members of one body, you are called to peace, as Colossians 3.15 tells us. The last in this family unity is that we need to affirm uh, the confessions. We affirm we're family by what we confess. What do we say? What do we believe? What what are our convictions? It says, therefore, in verse 4, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called, that calling in to one hope, That belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Too often there are people trying to unify Christians under something other than the doctrines that we believe, saying we just need to love one another because it really doesn't matter what you believe. Now let me just first say we ought to love one another whether we believe what we, we believe or not in a sense of what, if we're not in unity of belief, we can still love one another. Christ loved us in spite of us. Christ loved us while we were still sinners and did not believe. But love never trumps truth and doctrine and conviction. It's true that we love one another that we disagree with, but Paul laid out a significant doctrinal foundation in the first three chapters, and now he's calling us to spiritual unity for what we should rally around. What unites the church, not what we feel, not what the world tells us, not what the government begins to, to mandate. We run back to the scriptures and say, what does God reveal to us that we can rally around and unify on? If your marriage is ever in trouble, go back to the scripture and find the truth that may unify you. If you're struggling with your kids and there's disunity, go back to the scripture and watch the heavenly father and how he deals with his children. You find peace and unity with what God reveals. Unity on anything other than the rock of biblical truth is standing on very shifting sand. Our culture changes quicker than anything I've ever seen in my life. It used to be a little slower, but now, uh, uh, quote, truths and different things that you're supposed to believe change all the time. But the Word of God stands, has been true since the day it was written, it'll continue to be true. No matter what the world or the next uh, guidance uh, uh, individual says, some guru out there, the seven biblical confessions here, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. Verse 7 through uh, 10, it it continues to go with a few more things that that we uh, believe and the ascending of Christ, the descending of Christ, but I'm going to pop over some of those. I'm going to get down to uh, the two other major points in this section. That unity not only includes family, it includes diversity. I want you to notice the roles and responsibilities. Really get into this. He gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers. These are roles within the body that God has identified to lead the church. The first two for for the first century. 
And they are no longer needed in our day. And I can unpack that in another time, but the apostles had three responsibilities. They laid the foundation of the church. They received, declared, and wrote God's word. They gave confirmation of the, the word during their time. The prophets were those identified to, to call the sent out ones to, to believe in what Christ has taught and unified the church. The other two roles, though, continue. Evangelist, men, who, men and women who proclaim the, the, the good news of salvation. Evangelists who are going to share the gospel with unbelievers in unique ways. And then there are shepherds, pastors, teachers, the leadership offices of the church. Jesus is the great shepherd of the church. But he identifies individuals who will lead the local body. And I'm thankful this body has affirmed the plurality of leadership that helps guide our church and keeps us from error. There's a diversity in responsibilities, not just the roles. I want you to see your role to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. It's not about working on our weaknesses, but working out our strengths that God has given us. As the the pastor shepherds, the elders, the the bishops, those uh, synonymous terms, lead the church, they equip the saints to do the work of ministry. According to Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, which elaborates the diverse gifts that we have within the body, how do we uh, identify and magnify the gifts God has given us for his glory? All of us have a unity around using our gifts. But he concludes this section with the unity that includes maturity. In the unifying family that we have, and we identify the roles and responsibilities, we're also called to grow up. To grow up. To to know his thoughts, his his calling, that we could identify them and then, then... Uh, As I said, magnify or manifest in our maturity of growing up. Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That's a a, a confession and truth of Christian beliefs. As we're growing in our understanding, there's three things I want you to notice. Unity includes maturity in our thinking, in our talking. And I couldn't come up with a better T word. And and Tim, Cecil, and I, you know, we've been discussing, do you have to always alliterate? No, it's just a curse that I have in my mind. But we have to together. We have to live together in such a way. And I want you to see this in here. Maturity and thinking. I want you to notice there in verse 13. And of the knowledge. See, we're unifying our faith. In the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. To the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Maturity is growing in how we think, how we process, how we respond to right knowledge of truth as it has been revealed in the Word of God. Time invested in a relationship with Christ through prayer and Bible reading, Bible study, uh, to learn, produces a maturity that manifests His character in our lives, individually and collectively. We must become like him. And with no unity of faith, no growing relationship with Christ, no solid doctrine to hold on to, spiritually immature believers are prone to accept false teaching, 
and get defeated in difficult times. Discernment is needed. Sometimes we teach harder doctrines. I go, do we really need those? You may not today, but you will in hard times. When the world gets shaky, when, when things seem unsettled in the culture, where are believers during that time? Do we go, do we fear? Do, do we get rattled? Or do we sit back on the doctrines we have already taken in and go, God is on his throne. He is in control. He's got his, his methods, his ways. We will trust him in it. To live as Christ, to die as gain. It does not matter what happens in the world. It doesn't even have, matter what happens in my world. I will trust the one who has control. I think there are times we reveal our own immaturity in this world when things happen and we respond just like the world rather than running to the rock of our salvation. Deep roots in faith are essential. What about our talking? Look at verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Growth happens in relationships when truth is revealed in love. To keep back truth. If a doctor comes to you and he knows for a fact you have cancer, And he says, it all checks out. Go home. Just live a nice life. And he doesn't tell you the truth. He is not a good doctor. If you get a report card by a child in seventh grade, and they say they're doing great, but he can't read or write or do math at seventh grade, that's not a good teacher. If a pastor says, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. You're doing great. And you're cheating on your taxes. And you're flirting with other women that aren't your wife. And you're, and you're living in a way that doesn't align with, the, with the, the teachings of Christ. I would not be a good pastor. We would not be good elders if we don't confront some of those things. For your redemption and repentance. We have to help people grow up. And how we respond to the truth makes all the difference. And sometimes in love, we have to speak the truth in in such a way that doesn't always fit well, but it's necessary. Rules without relationship lead to rebellion. Truth without trust leads to rejection. Discipline without devotion leads to bitterness, anger, and resentment. So we have to check our hearts. Is what we're saying is true, and are we doing it with love? How do you talk? What do you say about others? It's Socrates who said, uh, is it true? Is it kind? Is it uh, utility or is it necessary? Uh, let me expand one of the things I wrote, uh, read about Socrates. One day someone came to Socrates and said to him, do you know what I just heard about your friend? And Socrates said, stop, wait a moment. Before you tell me, I would like to test you through three C's, he called them. The three sieves, the guy says. Yes, continued Socrates, before saying anything about someone else, it's best to take the time to filter what you share. I call it the test of three sieves. The first is this. Is it true? Have you checked what you're about to tell me to see if it's true or just something you heard? No, I just heard it, he said. Well, very good. So let's, we know that we don't know if it's true or not. He said, let's continue with the second sieve, that of kindness. Is what you have to tell me good about my friend? Is it kind? He says, oh, no, on the contrary. So, questioned Socrates, you want to tell me bad things about my friend, and you're not even sure if it's true. 
Socrates continued. Well, maybe you can still pass the test on the third C, that of utility or uh, or necessity. Is it useful that I know what you're going to tell me about this friend? No, not really. So Socrates concluded. So what you're about to tell me is neither true nor good or useful to me. Why then do you want to tell me this? The gossiping man then walked away with his head hung low. One of the the commands in a scripture right here even is gossip and unwholesome talk may seem interesting and enjoyable. But in the end, it fills hearts with bitterness and poisons all who engage. You know, Proverbs 16, 28 says a dishonest man spreads strife and a, a whisperer separates close friends. In 1 Timothy 5, it says, besides that, they they learn to be idlers going about from house to house. Not only idlers, but they're gossiping, busybodies, saying what they should not say. As the body of Christ, we need to be unified in how we speak to one another and about one another. In your household, how you speak about your siblings or about your parents or about your children or about your spouse matters. Let no unwholesome talk come from our mouths. The last little part here in verse 16, maturity into gathering from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I hope that you can love the people around you today even if you don't know them. With the heart of Christ, you love even those who may have sinned against you. Forgiving one another. Building each, uh, building, uh, each other up in love. In your bulletin, I, I added this quote because I just thought it was powerful. Corey Tim Boom, I uh, always recommend reading uh, what she writes. But she said, be united with other Christians. A wall with loose bricks is not good. The bricks must be cemented together. When Christ called his body, he called sinners out of their sin, save them. He's sanctifying every one of us, but together our sanctification is learning to live together more unified as we, we seek Christ together, to love one another, to pray for one another, to forgive one another, and say, how are we building up the body of Christ in love? We're linked together for eternity. It's now that we have to practice what that's going to look like. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace to us and that you, even when we were enemies of you, you loved us and you called us into your family. Not that we were worthy, but you were worthy and you gave us worth. And Father, as we live in the body of Christ, whether this local church or somewhere around the world, we are all linked together by your spirit, covered by the blood, But while we still walk in this world, we need to walk as children of the light. Children who love one another, who have a unified Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I pray you continue to do your sanctifying work in my own life. But also as we as a local congregation will learn to love one another and see how we can build each other up in love. Thank you for your teaching. 
I pray that you would help us to dream bigger about what can be done in this place as you work through us in your grace. Father, as we conclude our service, I pray if there's somebody in this congregation that just needs additional prayer, some encouragement, perhaps they want to give their life over to Christ or join this church, they would see either me or one of our elders here at the front. And Father, I pray that there'd be some unity in our small groups today, our community groups after this, that we can talk about your word, but also pray for one another and encourage one another. Make us a lighthouse of the gospel, so different than what the world is experiencing, that people, men and women, boys and girls, be drawn to this place to know truth in love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.